0: Getting somewhere else is an essential form of thinking. It changes the way we view the world and the way we view our own homes. That's why we're here. We're here to investigate the stories in our own backyards. To talk to the people who live here. And work here. Volunteer here. Love here. Restore here. Also that we can travel back outside that place and see it from a different perspective. I'm Abby Newhouse. And I'm Melissa Wade and we're here
1: to think and investigate and share stories about the varied places throughout our world, up close and from a distance.
0: In today's episode, we make it into the meadows of seagrass, collecting seeds, pondering credits, asking the big questions. What is so important about blue carbon? Does offsetting really make up for carbon emissions? And what do we do with our green guilt? seen that show, The Good Place? Oh, have I devoured The Good Place? First couple episodes I found so enthralling because it presents this idea of what gets you to the good place or the bad place after you die. They present the algorithm for what afterlife option you're going to get based on a point system. And the idea is if you do something good, you get positive points. If you do something bad, then you get negative points. But somewhere along the line, the point system started to become corrupted because if you think that you're doing a good thing, like buying apples instead of candy bars for your afternoon snack, and you think, oh, this is a good idea, this is a healthy idea, and you're thinking you're getting positive points. But really, what you don't know is that those apples came from a farm that employed child laborers at a very low wage and stole water from a neighboring farm, then you don't know all. Well, you racked up like 8,000 negative points by choosing an apple for your snack because there's so much in our world we we can't quite fit into one of those categories so easily. Yeah,
1: and so much that we don't know about, can't control, like these things are just... This is the way that it is. There's so much going on in the background that you don't really have a say in. And so unbeknownst to you, you could be doing something that's actually
0: immoral. <laughs> that's what I've heard about acai, too. Have you heard oh about that? Oh my gosh, I love acai. Are you about to tell me that it's an immoral fruit? I, I just have heard that there's child laborers that have to climb and get the acai berries. it's oh no! It's, yeah. it's so <laughs> yummy! That's so sweet. I know. I
1: know. With the good place one of my favorite episodes is actually when they do the trolley experiment so the trolley is like plummeting down the tracks headed straight for five people who are tied to the rail tracks it's about to obviously kill all of them but you are standing right next to the little switch where you could switch the tracks the problem is the other track the trolley could go on it would hit one person it's kind of this dilemma what do you do do you flip the switch do you let it keep going what's most important to you and in the good place episode they have to reenact this scenario over and over and over again it's just repeated because they're trying to figure out what is the best solution what can they do what like loophole is there to like save everybody what what do you think about that if you were the philosophy student what would you do
0: I mean I'm a I'm an ends justifies the means kind of thing, so I'd flip the switch and kill the one person. But I I get the dilemma in your own personal morality because flipping the switch is an action. So then you are responsible for someone's death. Whereas in if you just stand back, then the trolley or if those people are tied to the tracks, whoever tied them there, that they're at fault. It's good that we don't have this dilemma in our real life every (laughs) day. Yeah. But you're right, if we go back to like the apples, right? Like the whole idea of the unseen moral decisions of having an acai bowl, like you don't see them. It's not as simplistic as a trolley experiment where you're looking at your two moral options right in front of you. And maybe it's not as drastic as kill five or kill one, but you still have an impact.
1: Right, it's complicated. So much goes into it. And again, so much that we just don't even know about.
0: And I think that's why we try so hard to reach a moral equilibrium. We have a balance sheet of good and bad, just like the good place. Even if we're not exactly sure where the pluses and minuses come from, we still try to maintain some sort of moral level ground.
1: I know. I feel the same way. Like if I work out, it's like, all right, well, I can have a milkshake or, you know, you see like awful things happening on the news or whatever and but then it's like but i'm donating to this one cause so and i think you see that in the in kind of like what people have taken from the trolley dilemma
0: yeah it's like the the people who switch flip the switch like i said i would they're outcome based they have outcome based morality just like we said, the end, saving those five lives justifies their actions, you know, killing one. Whereas in the opposite group are more of a role-based morality. So they think, oh, well, killing is wrong. So I can't have a hand in killing anyone. That's absolutely against, you know, my morality. The interesting thing is, is like for those with equilibrium, they have a greater sense of bouncing back from bad and making up for their negative choices, almost like they understand forgiving themselves through doing good deeds. But the people who have a rule-based morality often hit a slippery slope and they have a more likelihood to follow one bad deed with another bad deed because they just think, well, I've done it once, I'm obviously a bad person.
1: It's like you just slip into a shame spiral almost like and I think that is because like this moral framework provides these rules that other people know about, right? Like usually you're in like a group of people who subscribe to the same beliefs or same rule system. And so if you do one thing that's out of line, people can see it. And it's like it's like it's almost harder to get back to where you once were because people are keeping tabs. There's like receipts of what you did. Whereas if you're not really in that type of community and you're just kind of living according to your own values and such, you can, it's like you can give yourself a little more grace to try again. I don't know, maybe that's too dichotomous, but.
0: They did, they did this other study that I read about called the public goods game. And so like people are brought in and everyone's given 10 bucks. And they have the option of putting some of their money into a public fund. And they're told if you put your money into this public fund, then it'll multiply in that fund and will give some of it back to you. So, you know, it'll come back to you, but could also go to paying off, you know, things that the community needs. So, aka taxes, right? If you put money into the fund, you are hurting yourself because you don't get it all back. There's no guarantee you would get all the money back. Most beneficial thing you can do is hold on to your 10 bucks all for yourself. But the people, majority of them, put money into the pot. And psychologists at first thought that this proved that people are naturally generous. However, you're putting people in a society where they have been asked to do something to benefit the society. And we are a communal species. So giving to society means you get some sort of return that might not be monetary, but still it's getting paid back to you.
1: Because, yeah, it's like this, this give and take It's like just built into our psychology for some reason. Maybe it's just like simply a survival tactic, like that you do things to keep yourself alive.
0: Oh, definitely. Survival tactic in the group. And I mean, like, that's why we gossip. That's why we share information is because if you tell me what's going on in the community, then I have information I can use that will benefit me in survival.
1: Right? We're trading stories. We're figuring out who is allowed in our tribe and who isn't and you see that all the time like that's why our gossip revolves around like weird things people do because we're like i don't know are they gonna aid to my survival or are they gonna like be a detriment (laughs) like it's sad but true i don't know i guess speaking of survival that that's just kind of what like leads into what we're talking about this week on the podcast because it's kind of a give and take
0: system that we've built around carbon emissions (laughs) Right, this is the big sin, right? So like, those companies out there, those people out there who, you know, are going far beyond just being litter bugs, um, they are ruining the earth. <laughs> is that too far? <laughs> I mean, depends on the company, but yeah. uh, I don't think it's too far for <laughs> for most. As we kind of, look at this offset system, there are all these questions around it as to like, how does this hold companies accountable? How does this work? Does this create a positive solution or is this just another way for a company to look great?
1: Right, put on that face. And for those who don't know about the offset system, we're talking about carbon today and just how different different companies who are actually allowed to buy carbon offsets from different uh, environmental communities, basically. Is that how you describe it? Yeah. Com-
0: environmental benefactors. So those doing work to improve ecosystems, the, the natural circumstances that can improve our planet or at least hold off more negative consequences.
1: So many of the companies that you see that boast that they're carbon neutral um, is actually because they're buying offsets. Like Apple, right? I believe that they call themselves carbon neutral and it's, yeah, because they're buying carbon offsets to offset what they're putting into the world.
0: So I think I think what we're investigating today is the two sides of that exchange. You have those people who are doing good for the environment um, who are actually out there making a difference but then you have the market for that and what companies get out of it. So I think what drew us to it is that that's an interesting relationship and just wondering how that works in the grand scheme of helping our environment. Mm. Mm. Sometimes, for fun, or for podcast episodes, I like to research how the kids are learning about the hot topic to be discussed. Since school hasn't started here yet, I go to YouTube. Planet Nutshell is this animation studio out of Massachusetts that works with nonprofits and education groups, healthcare and tech companies, and they've created a kid-friendly series called Climate Science in a Nutshell. It's what I would show fifth graders if asked to explain the science of what's warming our planet.
2: The Earth's atmosphere works like a blanket. One of the gases in Earth's blanket is called carbon dioxide, or CO2. But there's a problem. Scientists have observed that the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has been steadily rising over the last hundred years. All the plants in the world, as well as the oceans, can absorb all the extra carbon dioxide
0: in the air. I didn't know much about how the ocean holds and absorbs CO2 before this episode, before getting schooled by climate science in a nutshell. In fact, I needed more elementary education on the matter. NASA's Climate Kids website starts by addressing the elephant in the scenario, the ocean, it's huge, like an elephant. It makes up 70% of our planet, so of course it plays a large role in the cycle of carbon, as well as feels a great impact from the overabundance of CO2 in our atmospheric blanket. Even those of you who live in landlocked Nebraska couldn't survive today without the ocean, because without the ocean, we'd all burn alive. A lot of the hotter air temperatures from our warming climate get absorbed by the ocean, delaying the full impact of global warming. In fact, the top few meters of the ocean store as much heat as the Earth's entire atmosphere, More than 90% of our global warming is going into the ocean. But if the ocean gets too warm, then the underwater plants and animals experience the negative effects, like coral reef bleaching. So how does the ocean absorb CO2? Plants. Like the trees in the video. They take in the carbon dioxide exhaled by marine life and carried in through the air and produce oxygen, just like land plants. On the whole, the ocean absorbs about one quarter of the CO2 that humans create when we burn fossil fuels, but these natural processes take time and can't keep up with our current level of emissions. This ocean carbon, caught by plants, turned back into oxygen. This is called blue carbon. Carbon equals CO2, blue equals water, blue carbon a kind of jargon term to describe carbon stocks that have been locked up in estuarine and marine ecosystems.
3: And so why do we care about blue carbon? Uh, well, uh, our climate is changing, and it's changing because a number of greenhouse gases have been uh, building up in our atmosphere, uh, and carbon is one of the big ones, and it sticks around a long time. And um, so that's driving climate change. And so we want to know where the carbon stores are on the planet so that we can try to protect them, you know, as part of like a cohesive, multi-pronged approach to combat climate change.
0: That is Assistant Professor Chris Patrick, Director of the Virginia Institute of Marine Science SAV Monitoring and Restoration Program. The what, you ask? SAV Monitoring and Restoration. The decades-long program of annually mapping the entire coverage and density of submersed Aquatic vegetation in the Chesapeake Bay. Salve, that submerged aquatic vegetation, those are the carbon eaters. The happy marine trees that eat our CO2 and breathe out O2 for the coral and the whales and the health of really our entire planet. Chris and his team, they measure marine grasses, seagrass, and the blue carbon stocks they are able to store. But there are also mangroves and other marsh vegetation as well, which provide services to our world, including protection from storm surge and sea rise level, erosion prevention along shorelines, coastal water quality regulation, nutrient recycling, sediment trapping, habitat provision for numerous commercially important and endangered marine species, and food security for many coastal communities around the world. Blue carbon is the carbon stored in these mangroves, salt tidal marshes, and seagrass meadows. Within the soil, the living biomass above ground, leaves, branches, stems, the living biomass below ground, roots, and the non-living mass that make up the ocean floor. These are called blue carbon stocks, stored blue carbon in marine plants. Here's Chris again.
3: I used to work at the EPA um, oh, cool. a long time ago, and, and my boss, used to kind of describe it um, to people that didn't really understand that like you know all of the oil and coal like all that stuff uh, that used to be plant material and it's been underground for millions of years and um, we are just we're turning it into gas and we're putting it in the atmosphere just like you know metric tons thousands of tons millions of tons that were just it used to be underground now it's in the atmosphere so If you think about it that way, it's like we're trying to put it back.
0: Now, there are other scientists talking about pumping captured CO2 into the ocean floor. That's not this. We are talking about nature's mega daddy of carbon storage. Research has found that in seagrass meadows, an estimated 50% of the carbon stored in soil can be of external origin while most of the sequestered carbon in mangrove and tidal salt marsh systems is directly produced by the plants within the system.
3: 10, 15 years ago, people started uh, recognizing that seagrass meadows actually hold a lot of carbon, um, especially uh, really permanent long-term seagrass meadows. So the grass, it grows up and they're basically like underwater prairies. (laughs) One of the major ways that the um, carbon gets stored is there's little particles in the water. When those particles are just kind of floating along and they hit a grass bed, the water slows down because all that vegetation slows down the current, and then allows particles to settle. And then once they settle, they get entrained in the grass. And then uh, as the grass bed starts to grow up, these hummocks form, so you'll get layering of stored material. There's also carbon that's coming from the grass itself. So, I mean, seagrass is, it's photosynthesizing, so it's turning atmospheric carbon into uh, organic carbon molecules. And then some of that can get stored in the sediment as well. And that becomes a, a stock.
0: Really, the analogy of stocks works. The grasses sift out carbon, it literally piles up at their roots, and whammo bammo, you have stored carbon. This is a hot topic right now, capturing and storing CO2. Mainly because if we want to mitigate climate change, we need to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We look to reducing through the adoption of renewable energy and improved energy efficiency, but this is not enough. Because even if we somehow manage to magically stop emitting CO2 today, there is still a tremendous amount in the atmosphere that will contribute to climate change for centuries to come. If the ocean already absorbs CO2 and plants filter and change it, then seagrasses are a part of the solution. However, I know there's no one simple magical pill to solve everything, right? Seagrass growth is under high levels of pressure from coastal development and land use change. In fact, when damaged, when the vegetation is removed accidentally or on purpose, the sediments become exposed to the atmosphere, resulting in the carbon stored bonding with the oxygen in the air to form CO2. Seagrasses also struggle to grow because of poor water quality, maybe a lack of light. If you've lost your seagrass, Chris says, Something caused that loss. Something even like climate change. The negative warming effects can actually hurt the grasses we are trying to use to mitigate climate change. That's why the SAB program out of VIMS monitors and restores. It's in the restoration of the seagrasses that allows for more blue carbon stocks.
3: The really successful project is this one that we've been doing, uh, our program has been doing, for over 20 years in the Virginia seaside lagoons. And then in between the eastern shore of Virginia and the Atlantic Ocean are these um, these islands, these barrier islands. And in between that shore and the islands are these sort of shallow embayments, these lagoons, which are very salty. I mean, it's basically seawater, and they're shallow. And um, up until about 25 years ago, there was really no eelgrass or seagrass uh, in those systems in Virginia, and there used to be. And and what happened was in the 1930s, there was something called eelgrass wasting disease.
0: Ah, okay. Land development, dredging, climate changes to the grass's ecosystem, and now a slimy mold-like parasite coined the eelgrass wasting disease. This lovely little number killed off about 90% of the eelgrass as in 90% of the most dominant seagrass in the Atlantic. Good news, people stepped in. Yay, people. They reseeded and ill-grass meadows came back. Well.
3: Uh, but in the Virginia Seaside Lagoons, uh, the grass never came back.
0: Hmm.
3: And for a long time, people thought that it was simply because maybe something had changed and uh, seagrass couldn't survive there. But what it turned out was that it wasn't a habitat issue at all, it was a dispersal issue.
0: He means a dispersal of seeds to broaden the meadows.
3: Our predecessor, predecessor, uh, Dr. Robert Orth, uh, started a project of doing test plots, and um, they, they did very well. So the grass, everything that they planted germinated, and then it started spreading. It received support from the state to keep uh, doing these planting projects. And at this point, so we've planted about 500 acres out there and there's about 9,500 acres of grass out there now, uh, which makes it the largest successful restoration of seagrass in the world that was done by planting. Sort of kicked off this idea that's being led by the, uh, the Virginia chapter of the Nature Conservancy to start a blue carbon market.
0: Okay, let's back up. We got blue carbon. Ocean CO2 absorbed and stored there. We got blue carbon stocks, the stuff in the ground that the grasses hold in place, and now the blue carbon market. So Chris tells me that there are two types of replanting they do in the seagrass beds. The first is to restore the meadows, like we talked about earlier. The second is to provide offsets. One way an offset works is that if a seagrass meadow is damaged somewhere else, somewhere maybe where there is no replanting program, Chris and the SAV team can replant in their coastal waters to offset the damage. Like planting trees in New Hampshire could offset forest devastation in North Dakota. Trees are trees, right? Every branch or blade of vegetation helps. Yet the market offers something in addition. Carbon credit offsets.
3: The idea is that if you have a carbon footprint, your company has a carbon footprint, and uh, you would like to um, sort of offset the carbon that you're putting into the atmosphere, uh, you can uh, pay for these stocks of carbon that are being stored, and then you're back to net zero.
0: You're paying for Chris's team to plant more seagrass to absorb and store more carbon, maybe the very carbon your company created in the first place.
3: Uh, Is this going to, like, save the world? And, you know, the answer, no. Uh, It's not that big. Um, But, one, this is kind of like a proof of concept um, kind of program. Um, You know, the success of this, we're hoping will inspire other areas to do similar things.
0: So this carbon market, it's more than just seagrass and Chris Patrick and Bims and the Atlantic shoreline. Yes. Off the Caribbean coast of Colombia, it's happening in the mangroves. Remember earlier how Abby mentioned Apple saying it was carbon neutral, despite its growth in manufacturing, travel and infrastructure? Well, the Cispata Conservation Project, a collaboration between Colombia's Marine and Coastal Research Institute, Conservation International and Apple is a project also dealing in carbon credit to fund conservation in mangrove forests, which can store most of the carbon in their soil and sediment if undisturbed, for millennia. So to help fund that restoration, CISBATA sells carbon credits. This funding, this restoration, it's a hot topic right now because it provides natural solutions in mitigating climate change. However, some economists and conservationists are skeptical. The credits do fund needed improvements within our natural ecosystems. However, are they only maintaining a balance from a marketing perspective? Let's talk airlines.
4: But to impact climate change, we must reimagine flight. And the first step in our commitment toward becoming carbon neutral is combining immediate actions with long-term investments to protect the future of our planet.
0: So Delta's commitment includes offsetting 13 million metric tons of carbon through a community-driven conservation model involving local communities in Indonesia and Cambodia, conserving more than half a million acres of forests, aka green carbon. But a joint investigation into the offsetting used by some of the world's largest airlines carried out by the Guardian and Unearthed, which is Greenpeace's investigative arm, found that although many forest projects were doing valuable conservation work, the credits they generated by preventing environmental destruction might be based on a flawed system, with these credits being used to back up claims of carbon neutral flying and net zero commitments. Vera, a US nonprofit which administers the world's leading carbon credit standard, DCS, verifies the carbon offsets in the market, helping projects to estimate the emissions they have prevented by predicting how much deforestation and land clearing would have occurred without them. The investigation found that these predictions were often inconsistent with previous levels of deforestation in the area, and in some cases, the threat to the trees may have been overstated. You see, these companies don't just look at barren land and use credits to reforest. They attempt to predict where deforestation might happen and pay to protect it. Vera stands behind their estimations. Still, some scientists worry that the labels of carbon neutral are accepted to mean much more than they do, especially if some of these credits aren't affecting climate change reduction as much as they appear to be. So back to Apple partner to the mangrove restoration. They claim that by 2030, every Apple device sold will have a net zero climate impact. They have a 10-year roadmap that will lower emissions with a series of innovative actions, including that partnership in Colombia with Zapata. Thinking how offsets represent a moral balance sheet, where bad carbon emissions in one part of the world are offset by tree protection somewhere else, some still question Is it just a ploy to look like Apple isn't negatively affecting the world when it still is? Or is it actually doing enough good to offset the bad? Is it enough? Chris Patrick and most conservationists say we need a multi-pronged solution. Even Apple says so. We have a generational opportunity, said Lisa Jackson, a company vice president, to help build a greener, more just economy, one where we developed whole new industries in the pursuit of giving the next generation a planet worth calling home. An opportunity. This is what Chris Patrick talked about, an opportunity to do something. Whether all the credits have been verified correctly or not, whether flying can ever be carbon neutral, the seagrass monitoring and restoration programs are doing something. We ended our talk with Chris on his hopes. We asked if there was anything left we didn't talk about. He brought back his work, his goals, its impact.
3: Kind of an interesting sort of aside of like this, this program on the, the, the coastal bays, actually the BIMS Eastern Shore Lab is doing a lot of this work. Before we lost the seagrass out there, we used to have base gallops in those lagoons mm-hmm. and there's actually like, a, you know, there's a bay scallop industry and, and scallops, they really need seagrass. So as we kind of bring back one part of the system, we're trying to bring back another and restore all the functions that were lost.
0: The scallops are back. The seagrasses are back. It gives me hope. Our house is on fire, Greta said. We have to act like our house is on fire. Yes, and maybe that means we head to the waters at least for some positive effect. Up next, Abby does her part, volunteering with VIMS to harvest seagrass seeds for more planting.
1: Early morning, late May, me and my husband Jake drove bleary-eyed through the forests and fields of Maryland's eastern arm into Virginia's eastern shore, where we parked in a field next to a few big, metal, cylindrical tanks. Water from the tanks fed out into the Chesapeake Bay, creating little waterfalls near the docks. We were volunteering with the Nature Conservancy to go out into the bay and collect eelgrass.
2: We're here.
1: We're here. Who are you?
2: Um, I am Jake Vaughn. I am Abby's
1: husband. <laughs> He's putting on a wetsuit right and now. Getting on a wetsuit. Other volunteers had arrived, many standing next to their cars, changing into wetsuits. We changed too, stuffing our bodies into the slick, tight fabric that would protect us from the chilly water. I just talked to another volunteer who said she feels like a dolphin, and I think. That is accurate. We would all be snorkeling through the grasses, seeing the blue carbon-capturing plants in their element. Nature Conservancy coastal scientist, Bo Lusk, got everyone situated in two different boats, and then we sped off into the bay. It'll get bumpy, Bo warned. The sun was out, and soon enough, the coast was behind us. Only choppy water and buoys and oyster pots dotted the horizon. The boats were loud enough to drown out any attempts at conversation. So all of us volunteers, strangers, looked out over the water to the sound of motors and wind and waves. When we stopped in the middle of South Bay, Bo gave us the lowdown.
4: We're here in the spot. This is this is where this project really all started. We're we're in South Bay. There's a few things we're going to look for today. Um, eelgrass, typically most of the season is just producing these vegetative shoots if you see these they're kind of like long green uh, pieces of tape they're really flat slide your fingers down them you don't feel any bumps they're not really branched um, very green these are the vegetative shoots these are not what we're after but this is most of what you'll see down there and this is an example of an upside down flowering shoot reproductive shoot. Um, these look a little different. These have are much more branched. If you rub your fingers along this, you'll feel fat little bumps. And Those fat little bumps are where the flowers used to be, and now they're developing seeds.
1: Um, our task was to collect as much eelgrass as we could, filling bags and bags of it, looking especially for the reproductive shoots. Everyone put on their super flattering goggles, <laughs> tied nets to our arms, and we lowered ourselves off the boat. Jake's going in. How are you feeling? Feels good. (laughs) All right. Despite the vast expanse of water around us and this feeling that we were in the middle of the ocean, the water was only about knee high at its deepest. We were standing in a miles long meadow of eelgrass, just as if a mountain meadow were in a flood. I laid my body and face into the water and after panicking a bit... It's been a while since I've snorkeled and, well, I sometimes forgot how to breathe. Anyway, after I calmed myself down, I floated above the meadow of eelgrass, searching through the water for the stalks with seeds. The eelgrass was long and wispy, clumped together in little bunches you'd only see if you were picking at the roots like I was. Though I could see through my goggles, the water was cloudy, muddy, and sometimes the sunlight made everything less visible. I relied on seeing through my hands. I used the grass to pull myself along, feeling for the seeds, little bumps along the wisps. And then I'd pull this part off the plant and stuff it in the net bag that floated along my side. The water was moving, the tide dragging me almost more than I dragged myself. At some points, I'd raise my head out of the water and see I was flipped a completely different direction than I'd started in, and I hadn't felt the turn at all. All our little volunteer bodies dotted the bay, everyone floating and picking eelgrass. Have you played Animal Crossing, perchance? We were like those avatars, searching for treasure beneath the water's surface. Volunteers had come from all over Virginia. There was Kelly, who works for the Nature Conservancy's marketing department and her fiance from Richmond. Megan, an archivist who lives in Manassas. Another woman came from Virginia Beach and she'd bought her wetsuit off Amazon a few days prior. Jake and I had driven all the way from DC, a six hour trip in total. Each person found out about this project from different places, some from a quick Google search for volunteer nature opportunities. I was there for the podcast, of course, but seeing everyone come together from so many miles apart reminded me how important these kinds of opportunities are. A ragtag group of people working together as citizen scientists.
2: Jake here, Abby's husband. Unlike Abby and Melissa, I'm not the best example of sustainable living. I order things I don't need on Amazon. I throw away things I should recycle. I think a big thing for me is that it feels like such a big, often hopeless problem that the small things I do don't really matter. It's the Koch brothers' fault, not mine. But helping with the eelgrass was a different type of experience for me. I think for one, the realness of the experience anchored it for me, being in the water, feeling the sand and eelgrass in my hands. It was all very tangible and real. We wore bags around our necks that we filled with the seeded eelgrass. You could see the progress as bags filled and were hung from the boat. Talking with Bo about the larger concepts after placed it in context. The acres of grass that they had added to the bay, the success of the program, and the impact it was having locally. It was the kind of project that could feel small—two boats of people, a large bay—but that mattered greatly to the local area and the planet. And while it wasn't an endpoint in the climate struggle, it was a step—one I could feel good about being part of.
1: There's a branch of philosophy you've likely heard of called Stoicism. One of Stoicism's core teachings is one of control saying that humans can't control external events and that we can only control our thoughts and opinions and decisions and duties. Still, one of the heads of Stoicism, Antipater, said that we must control these things within ourselves to influence the common good. I think it's easy for humans to accept our small circle of control, maybe too easy. Like once we've accepted what we're allowed to control, we just stick to that. But this line of philosophy is interesting, as it allows for our personal control to be expanded. As I floated in the bay, picking eelgrass, I fell into the type of flow I attempt to achieve in other tasks I love, like writing. I lost track of time, focusing on one small task while doing something I love, simply being in the water. It got me thinking about how making this personal decision to do the things I know I love could actually have a bigger impact than what I previously thought. Bo Lusk spoke to this when recounting how he got into his work with the Nature Conservancy.
4: This is where I grew up, um, and my family's been here for a long time. Um, so my grandmother was a, a little girl here when the grass actually disappeared. And for her, that was mostly seeing that there was a scallop industry and men that worked in the scallop industry. Um, one day and then the next that was just totally gone um, so I grew up hearing that you know my grandmother would spend a lot of time in the water she was a great fisherman she loved to wade through grass beds and catch crabs for bait or catch crabs for dinner in the Chesapeake Bay side um so she knew eelgrass well but she also knew there was hadn't been eelgrass over here since she was a little girl and um, so I grew up with that knowledge from her, thinking that's weird. And same thing for me most of my life. I I went to to UVA in the 90s and um, they were still teaching about this mystery about the the eelgrass that disappeared from the seaside. It was like, oh, these classes are going to be easy for me. Grandma taught me about this when I was a kid. Um, But it always just seemed like, man, wouldn't it be cool to be able to to fix that problem? Um, And for me, part of it was just... I don't know if you call it sentimental, if it's something that happens, it's it's like a generational sentimentality, right? Like back to what grandma said things should be like. Um, really, I just feel good about helping to bring grass back uh, because that's what my family knew once upon a time.
1: Bo knew what he loved, knew his thoughts and opinions on the subject, and then made decisions about what his duties would be when it comes to carbon capturing plants in the Chesapeake. He took something he already loved and capitalized on it, expanding his circle of control. As I looked out at the volunteers bobbing in the bay, I was impressed at this group of people who had found something they loved and then capitalized on it. I thought of all the times in my life I've added just one extra environmentally healthy step to something I already loved doing. Like picking up trash on a hike or composting food scraps while trying a new recipe, adding food and herb plants to my collection of non-edible houseplants. We're constantly adding to our circles of control without even realizing it, every little decision affecting the world around us. And eelgrass is a little thing. Talk to anyone who doesn't know about marine ecology, and they might just see these long, wispy grasses as a pesky seaweed, the equivalent of someone's lawn, unremarkable and underfoot. But once we know more about the eelgrass's effort on its corner of the earth, it looks different. Shimmery and endangered. Something worth protecting and even honoring. Like Melissa mentioned, the eelgrass in the Chesapeake Bay almost faced extinction in the 1920s due to a wasting disease, a type of slime mold that affected eelgrass beds all across the North Atlantic.
4: And it was particularly tough on the eelgrass right here because that slime mold seemed to be tougher on grass in areas with the highest salinity. And we're pretty much at full ocean salinity. There's The ocean's right there, there's no rivers, no significant freshwater inputs. So the grass here was taken at the hardest. Um, and according to the scallop fishermen that were fishing here, you know, we, we had the, the highest bay scallop harvest of any state in the U.S. in 1930. But in 31 and 32, the grass was really starting to disappear, and according to some of the 32 scallop reports, um, they they really couldn't find much, if any, grass at all. Um, And we know for certain that after the unnamed hurricane of 1933, there was no more grass out here at all. So that that hurricane may have killed the end of the grass, maybe the grass was already gone. But in any case, all these huge underwater meadows that were, all these seaside bays disappeared and they were gone for the next about 70 years. Um, And it wasn't until 1997 when someone discovered a couple of patches of eelgrass in this area, really small patches, that just popped up. A
1: few scientists, including Bob Worth of Virginia Institute of Marine Science, got together to figure out how to get the eelgrass to come back. And they landed on the seed spreading technique we still use today. We harvest the seeds as they're ripening, hold them during the summer, and process them to find the best seeds, those that will sink fastest. And then spread them into new parts of the bay in the fall, when they'd normally germinate.
4: Working with VIMS over the years, we've managed to plant about 600 acres of eelgrass out here in these seaside bays. And those 600 acres of grass have been so happy that they've spread on their own to about 10,000 acres, maybe more. We we, we haven't mapped it yet this year. Uh, So this is an extremely successful project. Actually, it's the most successful seagrass restoration project in the world.
1: Restoring the eelgrass also restored an ecosystem that was previously lost. Like Melissa mentioned, bay scallops started returning and blue crabs as well. Along with environmental protections, the eelgrass is also helping to add to the local economy in restored oyster farming. When we met back in the boats for our brown bag lunches, a few volunteers brought back creatures they'd found in the eelgrass. There were a few clams opening and clamping their mouths shut, trying to swim through the air away from our human hands. There were bumpy sea urchins that could easily be mistaken for rocks, and there were sightings of bay scallops and blue crabs hiding in the grasses. On another volunteer trip, people had seen small seahorses, all thriving in this area because of the eelgrass. The scientists who discovered and restored the eelgrass didn't find a solution right away. It took years of searching, trial and error, and learning curves all around. We have to be so thoughtful in our restoration and making sure we're doing the right things the right way so that nature can get back to what it used to be. But destroying? With destruction, we can be thoughtless. I once watched a friend on Instagram painting outside with her children. A bee flew into their art zone and got paint on its wings so it could not escape. It hobbled around on the sidewalk, the paint throwing off its weight and balance. We could do a few things here. But I think in many instances, we just stomp the bee. A single instance of destruction, putting it out of its misery. But my friend picked up the bee, put it on a paper plate, and grabbed a dropper from her medicine cabinet. She filled it with water and carefully released water droplets onto the bee, clearing the paint away drip by drip. It took a while, and at first the bee was confused and scared. But it caught on that this was a moment of healing, of restoration. It sat patiently and waited, crawled around for optimal angles, and eventually, the paint was all washed off, and the bee flew away. A small instance of choice of realigning our duties based on decisions. The more I learn about ecology, the more I understand its importance. Isn't that funny? (laughs) It's that classic human thing where we make fun of things we don't understand, and then as soon as we hear very rational reasoning for why things are the way they are, We're like, oh, yeah, gotcha. That makes complete sense. Previously, on a walk through the woods, I might have been fine going off trail, exploring beyond the confines of the line humans drew. But now I understand that I'm stepping on some creature's home, if the creature hasn't already migrated away from human interference. Back to stoicism, I have control over my thoughts, which means I can change them. We returned to the bay after our lunches, hyper aware of the different creatures that might be watching us from the grasses. We collected more and more seeds, several netted bags hanging off our boats, ready to be taken back to shore. We'd been out for hours, snorkeling and collecting, some in the water longer than others, some volunteers chatting on the boat after just getting a little too cold. After all day in the sun, we'd collected enough seeds and we headed back to shore. The boat was even bumpier against the rising tides on our return trip, and so we sat in silence again, reflecting and trying not to fall off our seats. (laughs) Back at the eelgrass tanks, we took turns shaking out the grasses, getting rid of excess water.
4: We need to know how much grass we're putting in each of these tanks um, because we don't want to overcrowd. The seeds you want as many seeds as you can have in each tank, but if you have too many seeds in a tank, then fewer of them are going to be healthy seeds at the end. So this is this is where where this stuff is going to stay uh, pretty much for the for the rest of the summer, actually until we plant October-ish. And what will happen is uh, these seeds will start finish maturing; they'll drop out of the spades and they're gonna sink and, and be down on the bottom of the, of the tanks.
1: And in the fall.
4: At that point, we can get sort of a count for how many seeds we have. Um, not all of those seeds are, are good seeds, so as we count them, we squeeze them with a pair of tweezers, they're soft and they pop, it wasn't a good seed. If it was hard enough to pass that test, then we drop it in a cup of water. If it's dense and it sinks quickly to the bottom, that's a good seed and we count it. If it floats near the top or it takes a really long time to settle, it probably wasn't a good suit.
1: We stood around the tanks, watching as the grasses swirled around in the water. It was interesting to watch them, knowing their place in a carbon offset world, knowing that this physical thing could represent a company's carbon neutrality. When we talked to Chris Patrick, he kept saying this carbon offsetting was just one aspect of a multi-pronged system to fight climate change that this can't be the answer for every organization and company that's putting out too much carbon. Though the eelgrass covers acres and acres of space, capturing carbon and providing habitats for little creatures, it's still threatened by all the carbon that's still being released around it.
4: There's 72 species of seagrass around the world. This is just one of them. Um, and this is a really happy story. Yeah, Biggest success in the world, 10,000 acres and growing. It's just working here. Um, but. Really, globally, we're losing um, two soccer fields worth of seagrass an hour. Um, so really, the story is not good. On a global scale, most seagrass loss is because of humans, because of our disturbance, because of bad water quality, um, and yeah, at some point, water here will be too warm for the species of seagrass. Um, and we may have something from the south that can move up into here, or maybe not.
1: It's worth mentioning that though there is some bleakness to the general state of seagrasses around the world, the U.S., one of the biggest carbon polluters in the world, (laughs) just passed a new bill aimed at fighting climate change. Our government and climate change has been a topic I really have to exercise stoicism about, remembering what's in my control and what's out of it. But for once, we have a slight win. The bill will make electric vehicles more of a priority, even giving people incentives to buy them instead of cars that run on gas. There are also incentives to help families make their households more energy efficient and to make cities and states move towards renewable energy, like solar and wind. So there's some hope for everyone, including our seagrasses.
4: We want We want this project to mean more than just what it's doing here in my backyard, back where I grew up. Um, And so what's really cool is we've been able to study this. Like So many projects, you you do the restoration work and you're lucky to get a couple of years of monitoring out of it to see what what difference you make. And with this, this has been monitored from when it started to today. So over a couple of decades, University of Virginia and VIMS have been able to study this and see what do you get besides just more grass? what, What really do you get for that effort? why is it worth fixing your water quality in another place so you can restore grass? Or why is it worth protecting grass you already have somewhere else? Um, And if we can answer those questions here, which we are, then we can help justify the protection and restoration of seagrasses around
0: the world.
1: I didn't really wanna leave that day after all was said and done. We all took off our wetsuits, got into our separate vehicles, and drove to our homes throughout Virginia and DC. Just a bunch of random people with a shared experience and a new sense of control.
2: Jake again, 10 out of 10, I'd recommend volunteering. It was a very cool experience and the kind I think more people need. Less yelling at politicians, though you can still do some of that. And more getting outside, finding out what's happening around you, and filling up a bunch of mesh bags with some nice, slimy seagrass. And we went to cookout on the way home. So a big win, win, win.
1: Balance, right? Collect eelgrass, eat a cheeseburger. We're still working on our own moral frameworks too. As we drove away though, I watched the bay out the window. This resilient, beautiful, polluted, restored water pulsing, almost like a beating heart.
0: Thanks for listening, and we owe a huge thank you to all the people who let us interview them for this episode. A thank you to Chris Patrick of VIMS and the Sab Monitoring and Restoration Project, and a thank you to Bo Lusk and all the volunteers picking seed pods out of the bay. We want to add a thank you to the source material we use for research and background for this episode, to the researchers at The Guardian, DailyStoic.com, The New York Times, and The Daily Podcast. Also, thank you to the conservationists and the information they provided from the Nature Conservancy and VIMS. This episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Melissa Wade, and Abby Newhouse. All sound effects and music not recorded by us come from Epidemic Sound. Learn more about this episode at our website, we'reherepodcast.com, at our Instagram at we'rehere.podcast, or on Twitter at we underscore here. Until next time. We're here.